to um, <clears throat> actually, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go before we go to Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter two right now, but I want to go back to First Corinthians chapter fourteen. If you remember last week, we we went through First Corinthians thirteen, <clears throat> and that brought us to <clears throat> really um, to the end of about. Um, I think it was about a 17-week series that we did. That's a real long series. Started out in um, talking about the Holy Spirit, and we talked about uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and then actually we ended on talking about gifts and then uh, going into 1 Corinthians 13, which is the great chapter on, on love. And that chapter ends... Um, by making this statement, two, two very key statements. Uh, one is, love never fails. Um, and the other is this. Paul makes this statement at the end of the, of the chapter. And he says, now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And then in the very next breath, Paul's command to us is pursue love. Now, remember, when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't write it in chapter and verse. There weren't little numbers and chapter headings as you have in your Bible. This was one long letter written to this church in Corinth, in Greece. And so when Paul makes this statement, now um, abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. He says, pursue love. And so I want to kind of begin there today, but we're going to shift gears um, this morning and kind of head off in a, in a different direction from here. Uh, but even though we're shifting gears and going in a different direction, everything is, is related. Everything is connected. How many of you guys know the Bible is connected? It's all related. The Bible isn't just thousands upon thousands of little verses that we can just pick out or put on our refrigerator and develop our own meaning for what they are. No, the Bible is, has one theme, it has one message, it has one vision, it communicates one thing, and that one thing is Christ Jesus. Amen? And so, it's all related, but here in this, um, in this admonition from Paul, pursue love. Uh, we saw in John's letter, in his first epistle, in his first letter, 1 John 4, 8, um, God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And he says it again in verse 16 of the same chapter. 1 John 4, 16, we know that God is love. And so when Paul says pursue love, he's not just saying, he understands very well. He's not saying pursue an emotion. He's not saying pursue just an attitude. He understands who love is. Love is God. God is love personified. And he was personified in the person of Jesus Christ. And so our pursuit is to be a pursuit of love. And if God is love, we are commanded, and we're commanded to pursue love, then we're commanded to do what? 
to pursue God. So God is to be our pursuit. God is to be the one thing we seek above all. Amen? In our pursuit, we cannot forget that God chose us. We did not choose Him. So let's uh, begin here today. If we're going to pursue God, if we're commanded to pursue love, then we need to understand what love is, or more correctly, who love is. Because if I'm pursuing something and I've got the wrong definition, the wrong understanding, then I'm pursuing the wrong thing. It can have the right title. It can have the right name. I can use the right terminology. But if I don't have the correct comprehension, then what I'm pursuing is not the right thing. Do you know there's a lot of people in the world pursuing God? There's a lot of people in the world who believe in God. Do you know the guys who flew the planes into the towers, into the Pentagon, into that field in Pennsylvania? Do you know those guys believed in God? They had a passion and a belief in God that was so great, it took them to their death. How many of you could say that you would do that? Don't raise your hand. We could probably honestly say, I I hope I could, but I don't know that I could. I hope I could give my life for Jesus, but how do we know faced with certain death? I don't know. But I do know those guys believed in God and their belief in God took them to their deaths along with thousands of other people. But just because they were believers in God, did that mean they believed in the right God? Was their understanding of who God is correct? Uh Uh-uh. They loved their God too, but look what it led to. So see, our terms are very important. Our comprehension of the terms that we use are very important important. It's not good enough that we just say, I love God. Well, what God do you love? Because people in certain parts of the world love a very different God than you love. So when we talk about pursuing love, we need to know who love is, what that love looks like, and what it in reality is, and how not the world defines it, but how the scripture defines it. Because this is, this, this is the end of everything right here. This is the final arbitrator. This must be the thing that defines everything for us. If not, then we're all on shaky ground and, and we're all in relativism. It's, it's all relative. It's all moving. It's all fluid. Jesus didn't say build your house on fluid ground. He said build your house on the solid rock. And this is rock solid. Does everybody believe it? No, they don't. But just because everybody doesn't believe it, does that mean that we're to cast it out? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And we can't do anything about whether everybody believes it or not. You guys understand that, right? We want everyone to believe We want as many as possible to believe and to come to salvation. But do you understand that you cannot make anyone believe? And don't try to make someone believe. But here's what you can do. You can know what you believe, and you can know why you believe it. And this scripture will define for you what you are to know and why you are to know it and why you are to believe it. 
And so let's talk about our salvation today. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll begin there. And in talking about our salvation, we're going to talk about God. You know, we already made reference that you are the house of God. How do we know that? Because that's what the scripture declares. It also says you're being built up. A holy habitation. And so, we need to understand what that means. What that means for us. What that means not just for us individually, but what it means for us corporately. And so, let's begin here in Hebrews chapter 2. Let me just begin in verse 1. And we're going to read the first three verses. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Now, I want you to make a a note or maybe underline, lest we drift away there. Because it's important for us to understand what the Scripture is communicating. And in understanding what it is communicating, guess what? We'll understand what it is not communicating. You guys get that, right? Oftentimes when I talk to people, I'll tell them, "Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. Hear what I'm saying, don't hear what I'm not saying. Sometimes you guys hear what I'm not saying. And so if we understand correctly what's being said, we'll also understand what's not being said. Lest we drift away, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's another That's another phrase there that I want to draw your attention to. So great a salvation. That's an important phrase. So great a salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Now the writer of Hebrews here is contrasting the law and Christ, the reality of Christ, the gospel, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of salvation through and in Jesus Christ versus the law. And if under the law there was such a severe penalty to be paid for those who neglected the law, and he goes into greater detail in this in, in the book of Hebrews, but we're not going to go there, that's not my intent. But he's saying, if those under the law suffered what they suffered by neglecting the law, what is going to happen to us if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, I've already started off in a way that probably, you know, scares most of you or some of you. You know, this this is not, this is what all the experts tell us. This This is not what people want to come to church and hear, Pastor Jeff. But see, this is, this is my problem. This is my conflict. I'm a conflicted person. Because though I want people to be blessed and encouraged when they come together, when the saints come together, we also need to, 
to make sure that there is a firm foundation that's being established that we're all defining our terms and understanding what we're talking about in the same way. That we're all, if we can say it like this, that we're all on the same page. Because if I'm preaching one thing and you're on one page and you're on another page and, you know, we divide the church up into sections and everybody on this page get over here and everybody on that page get over here and everybody on that page and I'm on another page. We got four different pages going on here and, and, and no one really knows what we're just defining everything based on our own terms, based on our own doctrines, based on our own theologies. We can't do that, church. It's got to be based on this scripture right here. And if God took the time to inspire it and have it written in here, then we ought to take the time to preach it and teach it and, and to understand it and comprehend it so that we know what this is declaring to us. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Look, we should not, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken to us by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Now, here's the thing, and you've heard me say this before. We've preached a gospel, we've preached a salvation that has left many people with the impression that God is in heaven waiting for man to make a decision to love him. Like God's just sitting up there waiting for us. Well, I wonder when they're going to choose me. I wonder when they're going to love me. I wonder when they're going to serve me. I've had countless people, I've said it myself before I was a believer. You know, when I came into the knowledge of salvation, when I really began to understand who Jesus Christ was, well, my, my first thought was, well, you know, one day, one day when I live my life, have my fun, you know, sow all my wild oats, then one day when I get ready to settle down, I'm old and I have kids, and I, then I'll, you know, then I'll think about living for God because I won't have anything better to do then. I'll be too old to go out and do what I like to do now, so... The church will be appealing to me then, serving God. That, do you understand how warped that mentality is? But now I'm going to tell you, we, we, have, we have, purposefully or not, and I believe not so much purposefully, but the reality stands that we have somehow caused many pre people, we've, we've given people the impression that God is up in heaven waiting for us to love him, to serve him. That God's up there waiting for us to make our move so that he can make his. I'm going to tell you, church, God's not waiting on us. He's not. He's not waiting on you this morning. He's not waiting on me this morning. Now, I don't understand. God's a, you know, God is big. You guys do know that, right? God is so big that he's beyond our comprehension. He's so big that there's no... There's no way that, that the way I understand the world in finite terms, the way that I can wrap my brain around something and understand it, do you realize God just blows that away? You can't wrap your brain around God. You can't. So don't try. But he has revealed himself to us by his spirit. And he has made known to us himself. And, and what we can, if I can use this term, wrap our brain around, we need to wrap our brain around it. What we can't, then don't worry about it. It doesn't change who God is. You might not like it. I might not like it because I can't define everything, understand everything, wrap my brain around everything. I might not like that. But, but the reality is God doesn't really care. 
You know how I know? Because if God really cared, he would let me understand everything I want to understand. But the fact that he doesn't let me understand everything I want to understand means that he, he at least doesn't think it's necessary, necessary for me to understand everything I think I need to understand. Did that make sense to you? I think I need to understand a lot more than God thinks I need to understand. And so somewhere, i got to come to this reality, this truth that God is God and I'm not, okay? And I can ask God and desire to be able to understand and wrap my brain around everything, but if God says, ain't going to happen, guess what? It ain't going to happen. And at that point, you know what I've got to do? I'm going to have to trust God whether I can wrap my brain around it or not. Now, here's the reality. A lot of people are left with this impression that God's waiting on them, but God's not waiting on them. See, this false impression has contributed to a, what I believe is a low view of God. Whether the church wants to admit it or not, I know the world does, we have a low view of God. We didn't do it on purpose. We didn't set out maliciously to give people a low view of God. But I'm telling you what, because we have spent our lives trying to justify God, what he does, what he doesn't do, defend him in the court of public opinion. We've created theologies and doctrines that that just bring God down much, much, much lower than he truly is. And we have brought people to have a low view of God. The scripture doesn't paint that picture of God. God in reality, there is no way you can have a low view of God if you know in reality who he is. You can't do it. You can't do it. So now... A lot of people in the church, a lot of people out the church, outside the church have this low view of God, whether they realize it or not. And, it, and what happens, what, what I call a low view of God is it places man in a position above God. Now, we would never say that. But I want you just to stop and think about a lot of the things that we just accept. That, that in reality, we are really saying that what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to manipulate God. You can turn it on, Christian television, hear it all day long. If you'll sow this seed in this amount, and you can fill in the blank anywhere from $58 to $58,000, if you'll sow this seed, God will, you fill in the blank there, give you a Corvette like he gave me a Corvette, give me a house like he gave me a house, uh, multiplied 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, What are we preaching and teaching when we tell people that? We're teaching them how to manipulate God. I'm going to tell you right now, church, get that out of your head. You can't manipulate God. God is not a God that can be manipulated because if I can manipulate God, then I've just put myself, I am in fact above him and he is below me. And he's not God, but I am. If what I do can make God do something, if I can make God respond to me, then then he's not God anymore. And I promise you, he is God. He is. Whatever God does, he doesn't do it because I manipulate him. 
He does it because of who he is. If he loved me, he loved me because he's love. If he's extended grace to me, he's extended grace because he is graceful. If he has poured his mercy upon my life, it's because he is merciful. It's not because of anything that I've done. Nothing. So when we have a low view of God, it puts man in a position of dictating to God instead of God in his sovereignty. Listen, church. When we have a low view of God, it puts man in a position to dictate to God instead of God in his sovereignty being the Lord of all. And he is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the Lord of history. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of the present, here and now. He's the Lord of the future. He's the Lord of all. He is the Lord. And in his grace, he has privileged us who have through faith entered into life and salvation in Jesus Christ. In his grace, he has privileged us to become partakers of the divine nature. In his grace, he has allowed us to be a part of his plan and his purpose. He's not a part of my plan and my purpose. I'm a part of his plan and his purpose. And it would do us well to remind ourselves of that more often than not. Proverbs 1.7. Some of you may know it by memory. Let's go to the Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I, you know, this is what I do for a living. I mean, I pastor. And it is my business to know what's going on in the church. And I, I, not only because it's my business, but because it is my passion And I I can tell you right now that this subject, the fear of the Lord, is taboo when it comes to preaching, when it comes to growing your church. Because nobody wants to hear about fearing God. Nobody wants to serve a God that they're going to fear. But we want to serve a God who will bless us and make us rich and prosper us and make us happy and joyful and peaceful. So what do we do? We spend our time preaching and teaching and writing books all about that. And the whole time, we're not doing it on purpose, but the whole time, you know what we're doing? We're, we're bringing man's view of God right down to where man is. And God is nothing more than a self-help guru. I mean, I can go pay... $149 and go spend two days and, and hear my favorite self-help guru tell me the very same things that, that, that we have come to want to hear from the pulpits of our churches. Listen to me, church. I know this isn't popular. I know you, you might not. I, I don't know what you're thinking right now, but I'm going to tell you what. We've got to return to a place where we see God for who he truly is, where we know God for who he truly The world is dying. The world is desperate to know a real God. I believe that. There are people out there searching 
And they're, they're looking in all the wrong places. Because we're so easily manipulated, because we're so easily moved emotionally, because that's, that's our fallen nature. We want to have our itches scratched. We want to have our ears tickled. We want to feel good. We do. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, there's nothing and no one that can make you feel gooder than God can. <laughs> That's not a word. So don't use that when you leave here, okay? Courtney's ready to throw something at me right now. <laughs> My daughter is too. Those e- Listen, there's not. But until we come to know who he truly is, we have a, a misunderstanding, a misconception of who he truly is. We're going to be looking to feel good by something from something that, that's not necessarily God. Do you see that there's a lot of people doing that these days? From cult religions to drugs and alcohol to, to money and relationships, just whatever. Pick your poison, it doesn't matter. So as the church, and I'm talking to you as the church, I'm not talking to you as unbelievers, I'm talking to you as believers. You might be here today and you might be an unbeliever, that's okay. I'm talking to you as a believer because I'm telling you what, I want, if you're an unbeliever, I want you to become a believer. Not because I say so. Not because I feel compelled to prove God to you because I don't feel compelled to prove God to you. And you shouldn't feel compelled to prove God either. God doesn't need you to defend him. But God does want you to know what you believe and why you believe it. He does. And if you do that, if you have a reason for the hope that's in you, if you have a reason, if you know why you believe what you believe, if you know what you believe, then you will. You can't help but help somebody else. Come to faith. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Go to Proverbs chapter 2. Let me just read to you the first six verses. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment And lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. For the Lord, look at this, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. You know, a lot of people misunderstand the fear of the Lord. This is why church growth experts tell you don't preach about the fear of the Lord because you'll run everybody off. Oh, do that in your discipleship classes when you've identified the people who are really committed to Jesus Christ. And when you know they're, they're, they're sold out for Jesus, then you can teach them about these things. But if you try to do this on Sunday morning, you're going to scare everybody away. This is the conventional wisdom of, of our church growth movement that, 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 by the way, has failed over the last four decades. It has. Do you know, it's a billion-dollar industry. You know, they're all scrambling right now trying to figure out where they went wrong. I'll tell you where they went wrong. They embraced the wisdom of man instead of the fear of the Lord. 
They embraced the wisdom of man instead of the wisdom of God. They thought they could improve on the gospel, and you can't improve on the gospel because if anything you try to add to or improve the gospel with is no longer the gospel. Do you realize that? The gospel is the gospel. Anything I add to it, take away, try to, try to make it more appealing to the masses, it's no longer the gospel. Because what I'm saying is, well, you know, God, I see what you wrote in the book here, but, you know, it just is a little harsh. I know it probably worked 2,000 years ago, but we're living in the 21st century now. We need to tone it down a little bit, God. You're just a little, you know, all that fire and brimstone stuff, all that fear stuff. That's, you know, people today, we're just, we're just not there. So can you change who you are so that you're more appealing to us today? That, listen, I know that sounds silly, but that's exactly what we've done. We are not to make God more appealing to sinners. Sinners are demanded to become appealing to God. And they don't do that by modifying their behavior. They don't do that by learning sweet God tricks. They do that by being crucified with him, buried with him, and raised in his life. They do it through the finished work of the cross. They don't do it, God does it. You can't make yourself acceptable to God, only God can make you acceptable to himself. That's why it's called gospel. You can't do it, so God did it for you. Now the question is, do you believe it? Do you accept it? Are we still trying to make God someone appealing to us? So man's rejection of Christ should stir in us the fear of the Lord because of what man is rejecting. See, if we understood what was being rejected when we reject Christ, it would scare, I'm just going to say it because it's in the Bible, it scare the hell out of us. It would. If we really understood what we were rejecting when we reject Christ, it would scare us to death, the death of the cross, so that we could be raised in the resurrection of his life. But because we don't understand what's truly being rejected, there is no fear. There is no fear. There is no wisdom. There is no knowledge. And my people perish because of a lack of knowledge, God says. Man's salvation in Christ should stir in us the fear of the Lord because what man is receiving, because of what we are receiving when we receive the salvation of God, it should scare us. Why? Because when we begin to get a revelation of what God has given to us in His Son, in the reality and in the face of what we have truly deserved, it should scare us. When we realize how close we came to eternal death and separation from God, but by the grace of God, he saved me, that should scare me. I, I worked for the highway department for five summers, and I worked on the survey crew. And we were just, you know, we had a survey, we had a crew chief and a guy who knew what he was doing, and the rest of us were a bunch of college kids. And, uh, and I lived, I grew up in Victoria, so my first job 
uh, when I went to work for the highway department back in 1979, we surveyed Highway 77 from Victoria all the way to Refurio, which is now a, a nice um, divided highway. Back then, it wasn't a nice divided highway. It was just a two-lane highway. So we did all the survey work to make that nice divide. So if you guys ever drive to Port Aransas and you go down Highway 77, just know that I surveyed all the way from Victoria to Refurio, and it's thanks to me that you guys get to drive on that nice highway. <laughs> so we were out there, and, uh, you know, uh, this was before the days when everybody was so politically correct and conscious of everything, and it was still working for the state, you know, and we had, we were supposed to wear our tra- traffic vests, and we had our cones and all that out there, but, you know, you're on one of the busiest highways uh, probably in the nation. All this traffic going down to Mexico and back from Houston. And, and so we're, we're down there, and, uh, you know, these trucks are just buzzing by you constantly. And it just gets to the point where you don't even pay attention to them, you know. Cars just go by. You're just out there doing your work, and, and you're not even thinking. But, you know, I'm standing here, and two feet away, there, a car goes by me at 70 miles an hour, you know. You just don't even think about it. And, and so we're out there, but we were, we were working, and there was this real big guy. His name was Joe Nodick, and he grew up behind me, and just so happened we ended up working together. The thing I remember about Joe Nodick was Joe Nodick lived behind me. I never played with him when I was a kid growing up, and this is probably why. I can remember when I was a little bitty kid, I stuck my finger through the fence, and Joe was on the other side of the fence. You know what he did? Man, he latched onto my finger, and he bit my, I thought he was going to bite my finger off. He bit my, wouldn't let go. That's what I remember of Joe Nodick. Until I'm, you know, I'm working with him at the highway department. He's about six foot six. Great big old guy. Wore a cowboy hat. And so we're out there. And we're, we're uh, I don't remember what we were doing, but we're right there on the shoulder. I think we were putting down markers. And um, all of a sudden, we're just standing, I mean, just right on the shoulder traffic. And I... I just, all of a sudden, I go to do something, and I'm not even thinking, and I just, I mean, I just went to step right out into the lane there, and Walter Hill, uh, one of the, he, was the, he was a full-time employee for the highway department, he grabbed me and pulled me back, and I mean, if he wouldn't have pulled, I'd have walked right smack dab right in front of the car. You just, you just don't think. But I'm going to tell you what, when I realized what almost had just happened, I was fearful. I mean, it's just like fear came over me. It's like, but at the same time, I was fearful. I was so thankful I was still alive because I could have been splattered on the highway there. But I realized in that moment, I realized how close I came to dying and I didn't even realize it. But when I realized how close I had come to death, it scared me. And I had to just sit down for a minute and I'm like, man, and of course, we all got a really good talking to that we've got to pay attention to what we're doing. Church, when you get a revelation of the salvation you've received in Jesus Christ, it should bring fear to your soul to realize what you have escaped as a result of the grace of Jesus Christ. God doesn't want us to live in fear of him as though he's some ogre up in heaven that's going to abuse us if we don't do just to suit him. I'd never, I cannot understand how we come up with that picture of God. 
When Paul says to the Romans, he said, how much more? If God has given us his son, how much more will he freely give us all things? Why would we think God would would desire that if he has given us life in his son? If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ today, you have every reason to rejoice. Yes, there should be a sense of the fear of the Lord because you realize you missed hell even though you deserved it. But by the grace of God, he saved you. Now let's go back to this, let's go back to this term. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2. Let's go back to this term, this first term that I had you make note of. We've, we've talked about this great salvation. When I understand, when I begin to get a revelation of the great salvation that I have, the great salvation that is available, when I think of men rejecting that salvation, there should be a fear and a trembling. When I think of the fact that God has given me this great salvation, there should be a fear and a trembling because I didn't get it myself. I didn't earn it. I didn't do anything. I just received it by the grace of God. The truck missed me. And it just as easily could have hit me. But by the grace of God, it didn't. I'm not going to go to hell one day. Not because I'm a good person. Not because I'm a pastor. Not because I've spent most of my life in ministry. That doesn't matter. What does matter is that Jesus Christ died on a cross for me. He was buried for me. He was raised for me, and in his grace, he brought me into that life. That's why I'm going to go to heaven one day instead of going to hell one day. I don't deserve it any more than anybody else does, probably less than than most do, or many do. But it doesn't matter. By his grace, he has saved me. When I consider that, when I ponder that, when I think about that, it causes me to fear. Because I can't put my finger on anything I did to deserve it. Because there is nothing. But it also makes me very, very thankful for God. So this phrase in Hebrews chapter 2. Lest we drift away. Therefore, we must give more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. This this phrase, lest we drift away, speaks of these people. Remember, this was a real church. It was a group of Hebrew believers. But they didn't just have believers. They They had believers and unbelievers. If you read the letter in its totality, you'll understand what the writer is talking about. You had some of these Hebrews that were wanting to go back to Jerusalem to sacrifice They wanted to go back at at Passover and the three feasts that all males were commanded to go back. They wanted to go back and offer their sacrifice because that's what they'd done all their lives because they're Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you guys think you're going to go back to Jerusalem and offer an animal sacrifice and that's going to atone for your sin, the reality is there is no more forgiveness for your sin. If the blood of Jesus can't forgive your sin, there's no blood of an animal. You can add to that that's going to make any difference whatsoever. And if you're trusting in that, then then there is no repentance for you. There's no forgiveness for you because that animal's not going to forgive your sins. If the blood of Jesus is so common that it can't 
once for all pay for your sin, then there's no blood of no animal that's going to do that for you. So you got these guys that were all, but they're all together. And so here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He said, lest we drift away, we need to be careful. Don't neglect so great a salvation. Listen, if you, if, if you don't give heed to this, even the law, even Moses, those that neglected that, look what happened to them. If we are going to neglect so great a salvation, be careful lest you drift away. These people that had associated themselves with God, with salvation, with the reality, but had not accepted God truly, you know what they had done? They were covering all their bases. It's kind of like the bumper sticker, you know, that has all the different symbols of all the religions. Well, that's fine. Everybody has the right to practice whatever religion they want to practice. I believe that. I support that. But don't tell me each one of those is a path to God because it's not. If you want to take the path to hell, then you're free to do that. I'll pray for you. I'll encourage you not to take that path. But if you choose to do that, you have every right, I believe, as a human being to do that, if that's what you want to do. But just because you take that path doesn't mean that path leads to life. How do we know? Because Jesus has already defined it for us. How do you know Jesus is right? Well, I choose to believe that he is right. But how do you know that he is right? You know? We'll just wait and see when it's all said and done. We will. If you want to persist in believing this, you believe that. But I'm telling you, one day, one day you're going to know it's not right. And so here, lest we drift away, he says, look guys, you can't, you can't come to Christ on your own terms. God's not going to meet you where you are in the sense that that we're going to keep sacrificing animals and call it all good just, just in case Jesus' blood isn't... What if the Pharisees are right? What if he's really not the Messiah? Well, we'll call him Messiah, but we're also going to go offer our animals. No! If you do that, then you're not trusting in the blood of Jesus. You're calling it common, trampling it underfoot, and there is no repentance for your sins because that animal ain't going to cut it for you, honey. It ain't going to happen. So here's, here's the thing. How, why do we need to be careful lest we drift away? See, here's where we got to do what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul says, hey, you Corinthians, I hear what you're saying, but I'm also seeing what's going on. And, and it's not adding up. So here's my suggestion to you. Examine yourself and see whether you truly are in the faith or not. Hey, you Hebrews, I hear what you're saying. You're calling Jesus Messiah, but you're going back to Jerusalem three times a year to offer your sacrifices because you believe that that's what you got to do to really have your sins forgiven. I hear what you're saying, but what you're doing is not adding up. Be careful lest you drift away. Because when it's all said and done, if you are truly saved, when it's all said and done, you know what? You're going to stand firm to the very end, trusting in the blood of Jesus. If you're not trusting in Christ, the reality of where you are, it will be located, it will be revealed, you will drift away. Because your, your hope is not anchored in anything solid. 
And the waves, every wind and every wave of doctrine is just going to keep pushing you. Now, I grew up down on the coast, and we used to go fishing all the time. I told Terry and the guys yesterday, it's been three years, I think, since I've been fishing. But I remember, now you get out there in the middle of some of those bays, like take Matagorda Bay, for instance. You're out there in the middle of the bay, and, and you got an anchor. Well, you better have an anchor that's going to hold. Because if you don't have an anchor that's going to hold and you put it out there, you know what's going to happen? You're trying to stay anchored here because your reef is over there and you position yourself just perfectly so you can cast your line right, right where that reef is. But because your anchor's not holding, the wind and the wave just keeps pushing you, pushing you, pushing you, and pretty soon it's going to push you and you're going to run aground or you're going to get pushed out to someplace you don't want to go. If you don't have your faith where it's supposed to be, listen, if you're putting your hope in something other than Christ, you're not anchored. And you're going to find yourself pushed with every wind of doctrine, every wind of doctrine, pushed along, pushed along, pushed along. That's not the way God wants us to live. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying to these people. Be careful lest you drift away. You don't have an anchor that's holding. You, you, you might have thought you threw an anchor out, but it's not doing anything. You're being pushed with every wind of doctrine and you put your trust in the wrong place. Be careful lest you drift away and find yourself having neglected so great a salvation. And when we find that to, to be the case, it should give us reason to pause if we've not come to God stripped and laid bare of our own doctrines, our own devices, our own desires, our own plans and our own purposes, then we haven't come to God on His terms, we've come to God on our terms. Now, who is God? You have a low view or a high view? If we have a high view of God, then we understand we can't come to God in our terms, we've got to come to God in His terms. Why? Because He's the Lord of all. He is the Savior. He is the Lord of all, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And He has shown us the way to life. I'm either going to come that way, or I can take any other way I want to, but it's not going to lead to life. So God says, you're going to come on my terms, not on your terms. Because my terms and my way is the only way that truly leads to life. Any other way may have the appearance of life. It may be pleasurable for a season. It may be great for a while, but the end thereof is death. John 15, 16, Jesus says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask... The Father in my name he may give you. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now let me tell you what the gospel is not, okay? You hear? This is what the gospel is not. The gospel is not 
Now, since Christ came, you can get saved anytime you choose, as if we choose God. Well, you know, one day, one day I'll give my life to Jesus. Oh, really? So you're going to tell God when you're going to get saved? Yeah, you know, well, one day, you know, I know God wants to save me, and so I'm just going to do what I want to do for as long as I want to do it, and then when I get ready, then I'll let God know, God, here I am, I'm ready now. Everybody move aside, here I come, I'm ready. I'm ready for God now. I'm ready to be saved now. God, here, here I am. Save me now. Do you realize that is the height of pride and arrogance? That's not the gospel. Here's the gospel. The gospel is God in his grace and mercy chose to save you through Christ. God chose you. See, if I have a low view of God and I think there's a God up in heaven waiting for me just whenever I get ready then why should I fear him? He already sent his son to die for me, so what do I have to fear? I can get saved anytime I want to. He's, he's just, God doesn't have anything better to do. He's up in heaven twiddling his thumbs waiting, to, waiting for me to get saved. Now, I know you guys don't believe that. But do you believe that now is the time, today is the day of salvation? I mean, if we want to gamble and say, okay, you know, I'm, I, I may take my life in my hands today, but I'm, I'm going to reject Christ. That's fine. I did it for a long time. Now, I'm talking to you, church, because I want you to understand something. I want you to understand who God is. I want you to understand the grace that has saved you. I want you to understand that, that we serve a God who is high and lifted up who is above every and all things. And our view of him should be an exalted view. And when we think about, when I think about the salvation that I rejected year after year after year, it's a fearful thing. When I think about the salvation I have now received by the grace of God, it's a fearful thing. Because I could have just as easily been smacked by the truck. But I wasn't. Had I been smacked by the truck back there in 1979, I wouldn't have gone to heaven. I didn't believe in God, didn't believe in Jesus. I believe that's why God didn't let the truck smack me, because he had a better plan for me. God hadn't let the truck smack you yet either, because he's got a better plan for you. God had a plan for me in my unbelief, and I didn't even realize it. But now, every day that I live in Christ, I realize how his grace was working in my life, and I didn't even know it. And it causes me to have a fear and a wonder and an awe of who he is. Not in a bad way, but in a very, very good way. When we begin to understand that we are the house of God. The house of God is not a place we're going to go one day. We're going to go someplace one day. Jesus is really going to come back. Heaven's a real place. Hell's a real place. But I'm telling you what. We're on earth right now living in these flesh bodies. And we are the house of God. We're in 
a world of hurt. Hurt is all around us. Pain and suffering is all around us. Shoes won't squeak in heaven either. Okay? But they do on earth and I can't do anything about it. But we are the house of God in spite of it. In the face of it, we are the house of God. The gospel is that God has chosen us and we can only choose God because he chose us. We can only love God because he loved us first. Aren't you glad God didn't wait for you to love him first? Well, I'm gonna love those humans as soon as they love me. He'd still be waiting. But he ain't waiting. He moved. He acted. He loved us when we couldn't love him. He chose us when we couldn't choose him. He saved us when we couldn't save ourselves. We don't manipulate him. He has moved on our behalf. He is living. He is resurrected. He is the Lord of all. He is the sovereign God of creation. Do you trust him, church? Do you trust him? In spite of the good, the bad, and the ugly that's happening in and around your life, do you trust him? Do you have an exalted view of who he is? Is church someplace you come to get pumped up, to get entertained, to get your goosebumps, to feel better, so you can go back out and do whatever you do? Or is church not a place, but an entity, a living organism, the body of Christ, the body of believers, that you're not here for what you can get, you're here because you're a vital part, and you're here to give and to supply what the other needs. The person sitting next to you, across from you, behind you, needs something from you. Do you wake up? And do you think about that? Or do you wake up on Sunday morning and think, I wonder what I'm going to get today? Well, if I keep having to hear about the fear of the Lord, I'm going to go find me another church. Because I want to hear about success and prosperity. And I want to feel good when I leave. I don't want to get bummed out. Well, if you're getting bummed out, open your eyes. Let the Spirit of God bring a revelation of who Christ truly is. What he has saved you from and what he has saved you to. Man, that should cause us to rejoice, church. That should cause us above any and every other thing to rejoice. The horns won yesterday. Not real convincingly, but they won. Man, I'm happy they won. But I'm more happy about my salvation. I'm more happy about Christ. I'm not going to get bummed out because Dallas comes on at 12 and I'm still talking. I could care less about the Cowboys. Listen, I want them to go to the Super Bowl. I want them to play the Super Bowl in that new stadium and I want them to be the team that wins. But there is nothing and no one that is more important than Jesus Christ, than your salvation. Don't let the things of this world rob you and blind you and distract you, and take your attention away. Oh, can I just say this? How dare us even put football or any other thing on that we would even equate it, that we would even put it in the same conversation. That there are people 
that will make sure their worship services are over so that they can go home and watch the freaking Dallas Cowboys. My gosh, that is horrible. I'm telling you what, it does. That, that causes a righteous indignation to rise up in me. That we've reduced God to something like that. That the church, that our faith has been reduced to, that, that we're competing with the world and with entertainment. That is so wrong, church. How have we let that happen? How have we allowed that to happen? How could we allow that to happen? But it has. You know how? You know how it's happened? Because we have a low view of God. Because we have a low view of God. Don't live with a low view of God. Don't do it. Because if you live with a low view of God, you know what? I'll just tell you. I'll tell you what the writer of Hebrews said. Be careful lest you drift away. Because what you thought you had, you might not ever really had it. Listen, you hang around the pigsty, you're going to get dirty. You hang around the church, you'll pick up the language. You'll learn how to talk, you'll learn how to walk, you'll learn how to dress, you'll learn how to hallelujah and amen with the best of them. But I'm going to tell you what, just because you hang around the church doesn't make you the church. Just because you want all the benefits of the church doesn't mean you are the church. He The crucified one is the only one that can determine whether you're the church or not. Be careful lest you drift away. Don't have such a low view of God that you've deceived yourself into thinking everything's okay when it's really not. You hear what I'm saying? Don't be deceived. I'm telling you right now, don't be deceived. We're living in a nation where much of the church is deceived. And God is calling his people to come out of their deception and out of their slumber and out of their sleep and to put him back where he rightfully belongs. And that is in a high and exalted place where there will be nothing, nothing, nothing that can or will ever compete with him. That he would be above everything the object of our pursuit and the object of our perfect, uh, per, per, what's the word I'm looking for? The object of our pursuit and the object of our love. That he would be, that he would be our first love. If he's in his proper place, there can be no other place than first. For he is the preeminent one. Amen. Let's all stand. Now, I really mean this. You guys go home and enjoy the football game today. Because there's nothing wrong with watching football. I'm just not a pro football fan, but I love the horns. I love, I, you know, I love college football. I love football. There's nothing wrong with that. So that's an example of don't hear what I didn't say. But don't love football more than you love God. Don't let your love for football begin to diminish your view of God in his rightful place.
in your life. Amen. Father, we just pray.